yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of revolutionary desire and agitation as what we're trying to do with our art. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics. With me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In this episode of Tender Buttons, we're joined by the writer Yara Rodriguez Fowler. Yara grew up in South London. Her first novel, Stubborn Archivist, was long listed for the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Desmond Elliott Prize. Her second novel, There Are More Things, will be published in April 2022 and is a sweeping intergenerational novel about history, revolution and love in intimate dialogue with queerness and sisterhood. Both of her novels are published by Fleet Press. Alongside her writing, Yara is also a trustee for the organisation Latin American Women's Aid. I'd like to apologise in advance for the slightly diminished audio quality due to a few technical problems. Hi Yara, welcome to Tender Buttons. Hello, thanks for having me. We're wondering if you could start with a reading from your new novel, There Are More Things. Yes, of course. Okay, here we go. And let me ask you this. In 1976, a revolutionary theatre group put on a performance of Coriolanus, a play about a corrupt king who was deposed and killed by the people. They chose this play believing that Shakespeare would not be censored by the military dictatorship. They were right. But not only this, nobody who saw it understood their revolutionary message. It was a European play. It had not been censored. Those things foreclosed the possibilities of the text. The signifier obscuring the signified. So let me ask you this, can such a text ever speak? Can it be living in our hands? Can it be ours? Look then at page 203, The Tempest. Look at the moment that the mask collapses around Prospero. What is Prospero if not a Latin American dictator, eh? He conjures the mask, the spirits in performative ritual around him, a military parade. Their spectacle endows his authority and his authority creates a spectacle. Is this not the divine right of kings and generals? Please read aloud to me the stage direction as the magic collapses. Remember, close your eyes. Imagine we are in a theatre. Imagine, yes, you read it out loud, please, louder. Vanishes heavily. What is this? How can they vanish? It means to disappear from the Latin evanisere in such a way that is heavy, bizarre, a disappearance, a murder, the tumult of regime change, of system change, of the killing of kings. It is not a quiet thing. No, it is not a quiet thing. But it can be made so, or attempts can be made to make it so. Yes, Shakespeare says to us, look at this concealment. There is all this making of this authority, an art, a magic, as if, as there is of any authority, now, then, and since. You must know this. Shakespeare says, look at the magic, look at the making of it, look and see. If it was made, it can be collapsed. There's like a lot to um, go at, but I wondered whether it would be interesting to start by asking you about the role you think art has in terms of world making and it's like imaginary possibilities like within your novel. Um, What an exciting question. Um, So I guess... I guess I'm trying to think about how to put this articulately and succinctly, but I might just word vomit it out instead. Um, I guess I've been thinking a lot about um, 
art as a making thing, a building thing, um, and a space where we, for example, taking the novel, um, whether it can be potentially something that we do revolutionary things with, for example, it involves this contract um, where the reader agrees to spend all this time in this world another person has created, where they suspend their disbelief. Um, and that, can that be a moment for like radically expanding what they believe is possible and what they think is possible? Um, in particular, I suppose with this book, I was hoping to get people to go, um, oh yeah, neoliberalism is this thing that's 30 years old and all this stuff that says, no, you can't ask for tuition fees to be abolished, don't even dream about it, or austerity to be reversed. Like, that's such a recent thing that we take to be true. It's absolutely rubbish. And within living memory, even in, in this case, the late 60s, early 70s, there were people who really threw their whole lives into the revolutionary struggle and believed that like total revolution was possible. And they were so much of a threat to the establishment that dictatorships were established, like a whole empire through itself at preventing this revolution. Um, so I guess in that sense, I want to take that suspension of disbelief and use it for like as a revolutionary weapon. Um, and that's something like you had uh, Lola Olufemi on and that's something kind mm. of she talks about imagination and revolution in a really amazing way. Um, and yeah, so that's one thing. But I also think, um, yeah, and related to that, I guess. Yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of revolutionary desire and agitation as what we're trying to do with our art as opposed to kind of catharsis. So mm. like rather than the idea of being like, oh, I picked up that book and I learned so much about that culture or like I had a really good cry mm. um, and then I put it down, I got on with my life, kind of like uh, say the children advert or something. I want it to be more like, oh, I've read this book and now like I'm so hungry for what could be. I'm going to like go into the streets and demand more. Um, and that's something like Jessica that I really got from like your new book as well. Like it was about desiring like more and expanding kind of what we want mm. and think is possible. So yeah, I guess that's what I've been been thinking about. Yeah, I wanted to ask you kind of following on from that because this book is an explicitly political novel and you know you have a section at the back where you um speak about like the real world events that in, that you've kind of written a fictional world around so stuff like um ema like the killing of mark duggan by the police um the student protests of 2011 the military dictatorship in brazil and i guess i think it's a really difficult skill to write a novel that's rooted in the political, you know, without it being too um, didactic or which your novel definitely isn't. And so I was just wondering how you set about doing that. And, and was it some like, what was your thought process in trying to create a fictional world that is also has a political truth to it? Yeah, it's really hard. I suppose, like, the first thing that I kind of set out is that like, every on the one hand, like every book has a politics, like as long as it exists in the world, then it has relationships to uh, material circumstance and people and geography and all of these different things. Um, and I guess some books choose to be more like naive to their politics and others are more explicit about, about them. Um, but having said that, I guess it, it is um, what I would call a capital P political novel in that it engages with the state and with you know, politics in the sense of 
elections and political parties and things like that. Um, and I think, to be honest, I was I was like, that's very possible. I will write a book that lots of people would find preachy <laughs> or didactic. Um, and I just kept saying to myself, like, you know, if I was like a 50 year old Martin Amos or something like that, everyone would be like, oh, yes, very smart. Um, so I just have to um, like remember that, you know, I'm allowed to talk about capital P political things and then also keep it just as kind of unpretentious and oral and like about the everyday as possible as well so in that sense not leaning into the kind of like state of the nation like man novel um and and the other thing that I did do is in the particularly the more recent sections in 2016-17 I do remove a lot of sort of direct references to politicians so you'll get politicians named Tony Blair's named, Gordon Brown's named, Gilmo in Brazil is named, Lula's named. But after 2016, there's no, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's not named, um, Nigel Farage, um, any of these kind of people or all of the many prime ministers we've had in that time. Um, and, I, and that was partially because I, um, I wanted the reader to be able to come to the book and not be like, oh, the writer's a Corbynite or, oh, the writer mm. is a, like, Remainer or whatever. And kind of instead be able to go like, oh, this is a book that is, like, not, is actually a, trying to talk to a bigger, wider picture historically and politically. Yeah, that's really interesting that almost when politics becomes history, you can perhaps, you don't have to, not that you don't have to position yourself, but perhaps it carries less weight to talk about than when you're talking about something in the contemporary um, I also think kind of what you were saying about the everyday, I feel like like those bits do really ground the novel. Like I love all the, the bits that are kind of about domestic spaces, like the two women, Melissa and Katerina, in their flat in London. And yeah, to include those details, it, it, it gives it a life at the same time as being political. And um, yeah, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your exploration of those kinds of... Um, or domestic spaces, or I guess just everyday spaces. Yeah, I guess there are like two different things that um, about that that I've thought about. And one is on the one hand, like I wanted to capture the kind of little bubbles of safety and utopia that we um, and family, like in the best queerest sense, and in the least like patriarchal nuclear family sense um, that we create. I live with my best friend now and she's Jewish and every Friday we do Shabbat and we have dinner together and it's like a little bubble of safety and homeliness that's ours. Um, and I wanted to kind of capture, yeah, that feeling that this is a novel about like how fucked up the world is, but it's also not to say that we don't have these moments of safety and home and family that we've created. Um, and I wanted to kind of use these like smaller moments to gesture at like the possibility of a bigger one. I feel like sometimes that's how we know that something more is possible because like it's what Am Amboya has talked about, a communism of two, meaning when you fall in love and you're that feeling of sort of possibility with that other person. Um, but when I talk about a communism of two in the novel, when the characters do, um, I guess I'm just thinking about queer family and, and actually like 
when you have a kind of intimacy with someone like you do end up sharing your resources in this way that like there's no reason why we shouldn't do more broadly um and equally like when you're in the nightclub and everyone's dancing and it feels amazing and you're like oh yeah like what if this was what like isn't is life meant to feel this way like maybe it is so I wanted to kind of show and hang on to those moments of every day that kind of where we touch the what else could be um but then on the other hand I wanted to show that these are really nestled among like life really being quite shit in a lot of ways like I love London I'm from London but it's also like so shit to live here um like it's so expensive like the city doesn't love you back like you know every so many of the people that live here because they feel safe here because they're from migrant families and like whatever or like settled here a while ago and you know they're just being pushed out because of gentrification the housing crisis is horrible um so I wanted to write about like that precarity and that experience or you know that feeling of like you're around the dinner table with your friends and like everyone's being exploited by their bosses Mm. um so I kind of wanted to hold those two things at the same time and also kind of play with this idea of like relatability which is obviously like this buzzword in publishing right now and like I don't know personally I'm like relatable but so what like what is is this relatability doing for me like again like I don't want to read a novel just to cry or feel crap (laughs) I want to read so I'm interested in taking like relatability and then being like well can you relate to these characters and also feel revolutionary desire like them um so I was interested in like yeah taking that and doing something with it Mm. I was, yeah, I think like the way that you write London was something that um, I was hoping we'd come to because it, it feels like lots of the kind of contradictions you mentioned there in terms of these like pockets of like prefigurative love and um, queer family and utopian spaces that are happening within this, this like neoliberal shell of like London. I found it quite interesting how that's reflected in the form. So there's, you know, there's lots of bits where it's like someone moving south on the tube or north and it like speak the way you read it is quite has the rush of London and the kind of exhaustion of that but then it will be and then you've got characters like Melissa's Blairite boss Mark and stuff um, and places like Liverpool Street but then you'll get someone dancing at an amazing queer club or they'll be at the meeting and so yeah I wondered how like the form that you use in um, There Are More Things was a way to capture the, all of those contradictions of London? Yeah, totally. Um, that's a wicked question. And yeah, the novel is definitely full of the kind of ex- exhaustion of just moving around the city. Um, because like, especially because I was writing it during lockdown. So I was like kind of nostalgic to be moving around the city, but also mm. when I got back on the tube, I was like, this is horrible. <laughs> I hate traveling by tube. It stinks and it takes ages. And I guess like, it's this kind of separation that I'm, Melissa experiences when her mum dies and she moves away from South London but like I just feel a little bit angry every day that it's so expensive to just live in the neighborhood I grew up and I think that's just like a basic thing that everyone should be able to live in the neighborhood they grew up like both they shouldn't be priced out of it and also like there should be good jobs in your neighborhood like on the other end of the scale like anyway so thinking about form um yeah I guess some of the like longer passages where it's just like she's on the tube she's on the tube she's on the tube like I didn't want to capture the kind of drudgery of moving around the city yeah I don't know if it's quite alienation but something like that and then sometimes you'll get a line that's just on its own or that seems to like break away from that form and I both with the sense of London but also with the sense of like sometimes a particular emotion or there's a bit where she like kisses her best friend and I kind of wanted 
that breaking out of the form to feel like a kind of breaking out into what is possible as well if that Mm. makes some kind of sense but certainly I was conscious of like the passages that are about work and moving around London I wanted them to be like bigger blocks of text because Mm. you don't feel necessarily usually like you're flying um apart from Mm. there is one paragraph where I think they're all really drunk and they're going to a nightclub but then they feel like they're sliding across the city and they have dominion Mm. Um, yeah. And similarly, when she's younger with the oyster cards, because they were so revolutionary, suddenly you could afford to mm. move across neighborhoods. And, and you know, if we're going to have these sort of huge mega cities, then we should be able to move across them for free on public transport. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting what you're saying about the line breaks being like hints of something else, because in certain moments of like the erotics of the book, where there's bits where it will be moving through prose and then there'll be like some intense intimacy that then shifts into poetry. What poetry can do on a page is like kind of hold an instant and like stretch it. And so I wondered, yeah, how that played out in moments like, yeah, the erotics or other possibilities. Yeah, I think sometimes when I'm writing, it's quite instinctive, but usually if there's a kind of I suppose if I want to hint at, like, I guess, draw on more formal tools, um, mm. then I will use the blank space or a line break. Um, and sometimes it means also just like a change of pace. Mm. Um, and sometimes it will, yeah, like hold you in that moment or indicate that, that moment's significant um, in a way that I find hard to do without using up a bit more page space. Um, and maybe indicate that the character, particularly Melissa, who's like relationship to her sexuality and to sex itself kind of moves and changes a bit throughout the book as she becomes more or less sort of comfortable more generally or happy more generally. I think, yeah, it's a way of, I, I don't know, I guess creating intensity and a pace that focuses on a moment and what it might mean and then connecting it to something else. Um, mm. I'm thinking like particularly of, Melissa's relationship to intimacy but also grief and like knitting those two things together Mm. and then there's also a section of the book that's set during the dictatorship and that has a different form as well and I was really interested there like because my first book Southern Archivist was quite short I was kind of more interested in what it would what would happen if you had a chonkier book which then had a kind of something in the form that would indicate like this little this little bit is magical and special Mm. um I don't know if you've read um, Possession or The Blind Assassin, but they both Mm. have these like sub narratives or whatever that are set in other times that like are quite sexy and historical. And I wanted to kind of capture that romance somehow and use form to do that. And I was sort of thinking like maybe in a bigger book, if you hold people back for longer than when it happens, then the form could pack more of a punch. That's what I was sort of thinking about. Yeah, I think... um... Formally, I really appreciated kind of like the, it has like a real like collage aesthetic, like there are, um, you know, as Jack said, there are bits that read more like poetry, there are the longer pieces, there are a lot of sounds, there's a lot of like um, street names, there's a, you kind of like play with white space, white space, you play with the font. I could almost visualize it in my mind as kind of like, um, flat like political flyers or like placards or like it Mm. really has that energy or kind of like um documentaries and I was wondering if that was something that you were like that you had in your mind while you were writing um yeah definitely definitely like really want it to kind of um 
I guess it comes from a place I guess I want it to be like fun to read um and like for me that's like fun when you see like oh that's arranged differently when am I going to get to that page but beyond that like um I guess I wanted always the text to remind you of its materiality so for the text to always be like there's a lot of novels like like if you take like um like um, this is no shade to any of these novels like for example Zadie Smith novel apart from NW but or just an, a chapter book novel that moves normally traditionally conventionally through it um it doesn't really like draw attention to its novelness or the fact mm. it's a novel if that makes sense it doesn't say like oh I, I could have been put together differently it just sort of takes for granted and almost like invisibilizes all of those decisions that have been taken at, about how it should exist as a text um, and I really wanted to like draw attention to the fact that like this is a text that has been put together um, it's a like material object that someone has created like it's not just mm. like I didn't just burp it out like even if I had like then a publisher has to like turn it into paper and stuff mm -hmm. um, so I really wanted to kind of make the reader think about the book as rooted and having tendrils linking it to the world and therefore the reader also and therefore it's not something that you can just pick up and put down it's something that like lives with you in the mm. world and all of the other things that are in it mm. um, if that makes sense and apart from that I guess like yeah I really wanted it to have that kind of punk spirit mm. of like a leaflet or a placard somehow. I think linked to that I, I was thinking about um, yeah, like I, as you mentioned, we just had uh, Lola Olafemi on, and one thing I liked about both of your books is how it begins with like a kind of instructions in terms of like uh, what a reader can do with their body and their voice as they're reading your book, which obviously like we're often, well, we're definitely taught in schools to be like quite passive when we're consuming literature and to feel like we're looking at this genius canon of like white male dead people. So like at the start, you say when the song plays on the page, listen out loud, when characters speak in chorus, um, speak along with them. And I wondered like about, yeah, your reasons for those instructions, but also how you envisage like your readers, like as you're writing, writing the book itself, like the process of writing it. And obviously this is a, like a premature question because the book hasn't come out yet, but how you anticipate that might shift once the book's like in the world and published and people are accessing it. So again, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that like, yeah, you're not a passive reader engaging with this mystical abstracting the text. Like you're mm. a person somewhere in the world of the body, like engaging with a material object. So I, again, I wanted to, again, just yeah, to draw attention to that, but also um, the kind of musical aspect yeah, I, I guess so often, I don't know if, if you both experience this, but like, I, of course, I want the reader to listen to the song in, in the book, like mm. it's there for a reason. And I just worry that people don't do that. So I thought mm. I would tell them explicitly to do that. Um, and I think that's something that I've seen in a few other books, like all the Hajar Press books have a playlist mm. up front. I think open water also the paperback has come out with a little like thing you can scan and it sends you to a Spotify mm. playlist. And I'm like slightly less enamored with the like Spotify collab, but you know what I mean? Like whatever, like I think it's really exciting. And also because there are all these stupid copyright laws that mean you can't quote extensively from music in mm. novels, um, which is just, it's like 
yeah like a ban on intertextuality it's really rubbish Mm -hmm. so I guess it's a way of getting around that like originally I wanted to quote like so much music and lyrics but I'm not allowed to and again the same thing like people may not read out loud um but I kind of really hope they do because I think when Melissa is sitting in the activist meeting and they are reading out their sort of little manifesto thing you know she is both enthralled and excited and something very moving is happening but she's also like cringing her bollocks off and she's like oh my god if my boss could see me he would think I was this crazy person and I kind of wanted the reader to go through that like I wanted the reader to push through the cringe of actually Mm. believing in something um Mm. and kind of push through the cringe of sitting there saying these things out loud to themselves I kind of wanted to challenge the reader to do that um also Going back to your first novel, Stubborn Archivist, which um, is also formally experimental, but it feels quite different. Like that book is so much about trauma and absence and like how to find a language for difficult things. Um, I mean, this is a broad question, but I wanted to ask you, like, I guess linking back to the reading you did at the beginning, like, why is it important, do you think? to find new forms or to kind of like push the boundaries of what novels can be? So I guess the world changed a fair bit, right? So I think I wrote Stubborn Archivist in 2014-15 and then there was like the impeachment in Brazil and two general elections here and 2017 was really exciting and then 2019 was like super traumatizing. Mm. And I think um, that part of me really got a lot more hungry for big change and a lot like I think like if you had asked me in 2015 I would have been like yeah Labour government sweet but now I'm like no we have a climate crisis like we need everything so much more so I think that there was certainly something that happened to me where I suddenly became much more preoccupied with like real radical change like abolitionism and things like that rather than back then I think I was probably much more like just on a like let's reverse austerity vibe which you know, like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think I changed. So in terms of what I was thinking about, that changed. Um, But I also think with Stubborn Archivist, I was thinking about a quite, because quite focused in a way on this idea of trauma and resisting epistemological domination, resisting narrative domination as, you know, in the realm of sexual, talking about sexual assault and trauma and resisting this, like, you have to vomit up your trauma, like, or you have to write a confessional article. So like resisting that, and then also resisting it from this sort of imperial colonial point of view, like resisting mapping and translation and things like that. So I was really thinking a lot about, you know, the right to not divulge information and the power in holding back. So like, it's a book about, I guess, healing from sexual assault that has no rape scene and that kind of thing, and how to not re-traumatize the reader. So I was thinking much more about I suppose like one person or one family um and I was thinking a lot about identity and yeah I guess I wanted to write something with a kind of much bigger canvas and I and I have become less preoccupied with the idea of obscuring information um in this novel it's not so much about that there's still a lot about archive and missing pieces but I think because it's not about sexual assault I don't feel that same protectiveness over the character and over information and I think also my relationship to my Brazilianness has definitely changed yeah the university experience was really alienating in terms of it just being very white British and like the institution as well as the people and I think I came back to London feeling like really hungry to connect with other Latin American people and to have this kind of Latin American feminism. And I think since then I've, I've become much more disillusioned with that. I've, I've met loads of 
terrible Latin American people and mm. the you know the election results if if it was the British consular alone Bolsonaro would have run on one on the first round with 60% of the vote so like when I hear Brazilian voices on the tube now I'm like oh probably a fascist I don't think like oh someone I could connect with <laughs> yeah I that one thing I was um interested with between the two novels is is about translation and I wondered about the choices because in there are more things there are bits that are left, the bits of Portuguese that are left untranslated. And then there's other bits, like, for example, the where there's the crucial Senate vote on the impeachment, where there are bits of translation going on. So, yeah, I wondered where those choices lay for you. If it was, like, completely up to me, I think I would leave so much of it untranslated and just be like, Google mm. it, guys. But um, people would just won't do that. And and there isn't an, an <laughs> I don't I also do want to invite people in and be like this is everyone's history like get stuck in like mm-hmm. um, like when you translate something you do a, a widen the audience for it that just and who can access it that just is true so I mm-hmm. guess it's like I want to actually invite my let's be realistic mostly anglophone audience like into it and say like this is yeah like this is history for you as well it doesn't you know this is these borders and planet this is all our planet whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to invite the reader in and I also want to acknowledge that like complete translation isn't really possible and I suppose that's why there are arguments over translation in the book like I want it to be again like not pretending to be a complete map of anything Mm. Um, and there is one particular bit that's left untranslated and it's a bit where one character is like she's saying like I've always existed I've always belonged here there is no history of me and I kind of wrote that because I again I didn't know how many people will bother translating it but I wanted to kind of have that moment where she kind of says like don't ask me where I'm from like this bit of land belongs to me as much as anybody else I've always been here Mm. um so that was what was behind that I guess but yeah I mean I want to get the balance right between like inviting the reader in like inviting you to understand why this moment in Brazilian politics is important but at the same time being like you know and I'm not going to over explain it you can go read the Wikipedia page if you like. Yeah um both of your books also like um manage to hold multiple timelines um so you're kind of moving backwards and forth over kind of um like timelines and also geographical borders um and I was wondering why you feel drawn to that and also I guess how how you manage to pull that off, you know, in, in in a craft sense. How how can books hold more than one time and space um, at once? Um, yeah, it's really hard. Like um, there are chap like big chunks of the book, like Amen Corner and Who um, Are the Bonfing, that span like about 50, 20 years, fifteen years, in like. 12,000 words and like so hard like I really struggled when I'm writing those like how do you move from one scene to the next when maybe a year's passed and the reader like Mm. come along with you um so um yeah I mean I maybe spent like a year trying to get some of that right and I guess I I think that's why I had to like balance out those bits where like it's really skipping over a lot and moving across a lot of time with the ones that are like more live and in the moment to kind of keep the reader's attention and get I I kind of felt like I had to be like 
look, here's something in the present that takes place over a few weeks and you can totally get your head around it. And then here's something that takes place over 10 years, but you're invested in the character, please maybe stay interested. Um, mm. I guess I was, yeah, that was part of what I was trying to do in terms of making the pace feel right. Um, but um, I guess like why it's important for me is, yeah, I, I really want to, um, suggest to the reader, juxtapose things that happened, um, I suppose, like, yeah, in the 1970s and that happened now and kind of suggest a relationship between them. Yeah, I think that that's the only way I can think of to do that. Um, and to kind of, I wanted to take advantage of the fact that like with a book, especially like a bigger one, you have people's attention for like however long it takes them to read 300 pages. So like you might be in someone's life for like a week even, which is quite exciting. And it's longer than a film, not longer than a TV series, but it's quite a long time to have someone's attention. And so I wanted to use that to say, look how to really try and get people to think in these big swathes of time. Um, and get people thinking again, like this idea of expanding imaginative horizons, like, you know, we might not have a revolution in our lifetimes, but we are part of generations of people that have dreamt of that and have worked towards that. So I guess that was part of what I was trying to do is create that sense of linkage and sisterhood between the women in Brazil during the dictatorship and the women living in London now, and kind of suggest that like, we may never have real hard evidence of our connection to these people or what they were thinking or what they were doing. Um, but here I've imagined it for you. And I think this feeling is really important and it's really important to like carry it with us. That seems to be a way of like reanimating archives or like what's lost in archives as well, maybe. Yeah, totally like thinking about fabulation and like Sadia Hartman's work. Um, obviously she does like creative nonfiction, but kind of imagining around imagining like the intimate lives of people who you know were never going to have hard evidence of what they ate for breakfast or when they fell in love or who they had sex with or whatever um but kind of endowing them with those things yeah I, and I, I guess that maybe goes back as well to these contradictions that depict between like the zombified neoliberal London as it's become through finance and speculation stuff but then these pockets of yeah like radical resistance which I suppose by the juxtaposition you mentioned with like historical revolutionary moments, it's like maybe like sparks in the dark there to like move to. Yeah, completely, completely. And just back to that amazing Anne Boyer quote that you mentioned at the start, little communism of two is a place of healing. Is that something like something along those lines that is the Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm <laughs> sure I'm sure I've like butchered it, but she talks about um she talks about it as like falling in love and even a woman falling in love with a man and like the contradiction mm. of like that relationship being a site of so much violence, but also this place where I think she says unalienated healing, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So I wondered with that through the character of Melissa and the foregrounding of her queerness and, and relationship to that, um, how that as a pivot on which to understand love in the novel and particularly with Melissa, like how these little communisms, if you like, are both like glimpses of like a, a potential freedom, whilst also being capturing lots of loss as well, and quite a lot of pain in terms of like Melissa's journey through the novel. Yeah, definitely. And I've thought a lot about 
the fact that I put her through a lot in the book and yeah I don't know feeling feeling like that pain but um so I guess Melissa has like never been in a traditional family maybe when she was very very young but she was brought up by her mum and these three grandmothers Jean, Janine and Jasmine um and then later we see her she has this best friend Katrina and they live together and they look after each other and Katrina also kind of allows her a sort of access back into her Brazilianness. um and but she also has like really good friends like Femi um and Ivy and Olivia her friends from school um and then she has this also best friend from school Ruthie who they don't speak for a while and anyway but I guess I wanted to show all these kind of alternative families like you said like these alternative ways of loving and it doesn't mean that there won't be heartbreak or grief um and there is certainly when we try and practice it like in the world as it is now but there are also like quite exciting possibilities for how to structure community and family um and they're quite open-ended like they're quite you know they include um Ivy and her boyfriend Dan who are in some ways very conventional um but they also mm. Um, make space for Melissa who throughout the novel kind of just has a lot a fair bit of casual sex and that's also fine and yeah I wanted to sort of suggest these kind of new ways of doing family and community um, but without ever making Melissa like have to come out or put a label on herself like I wanted it almost to mm. gesture at a world where like that's not even necessary mm. um, and yeah so I guess that's what I was trying to open up there whilst also showing how like you don't just click your fingers and start having like unalienated sex where you're super present um or like just because you're having casual sex doesn't mean you're like it's really easy to do or it's sort of super mm. sexy every time um and that sex is very integrated into kind of how we are in general I guess I wanted to move away from stuff in archivist where it's like sexuality after trauma like ah mm. um and kind of just be like oh sexuality in general like when you're young and kind of carrying a lot of sadness like sex might be a bit weird or mm. you know whatever and yeah so that's what I wanted to do with Melissa's queer queerness is like yeah just let it sort of suggest all of these things um and not necessarily kind of have to carry a big label. I wanted to ask you about um the difference that you felt because our first novels came out in the same year around the same year and our second novel will come out in the same year and I was just wondering because I've been thinking about this a lot what has been the difference in experience for you between writing and publishing a first novel and kind of been on the verge of publishing a second one I have so many thoughts about this and yeah I really want to know what you think but um yeah when some an archivist like when I signed a book deal and when it was coming out I was really just like oh my god I've signed a book deal that's so sick like I've been so validated I've achieved my dream like how amazing is all of this I've been chosen like awesome um and um and I had a lovely people work on it and a good really good experience but I think now I'm much more like wow of course these corporations are not the people who get to decide what good art is and the idea that like I've ever thought that is a bit weird and um, there are lots of editors with really good judgment but they're still at the behest of like 
their bosses and um, the bottom line and so on. So like, yeah, making art as a commodity and art for profit is like actually like a really tricky thing to negotiate. And it certainly shouldn't be how we measure like what sells and what makes money or what these companies think will make money. These companies that are largely like huge conglomerates, right? Um, shouldn't be how we measure like what is good art. So I think I've become much more cynical and detached from like the validation of the industry whilst also becoming much more financially dependent on it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a bit weird really. Um, yeah, so I think I'm much more like just thinking, like I think a kind of bad review would hurt me a lot less, less now. I hope it would anyway. And I think um, I'm much more thinking about pragmatically how do I create and not let it be co-opted and how can I do it on my terms and get it to people um, and yeah all those things and, and there are things to be grateful for like it's easier to like apply for funding and get it for example as well so yeah I don't know what do you what do you think um, I think it's probably a, like a necessary shift probably I've also come through that like it, it's also overwhelming and you're so starry-eyed about the whole thing and then becoming maybe a little bit more real and a little bit more cynical about it and kind of thinking about the financial side of things a bit more and I think at first it can feel like a bit brutal when you start to view it through that lens but at the same time if I guess if it is part of your job and it's a world you want to move through and kind of hold the balance between earning a living but also staying true to what you want to do it's also probably healthy to be asking all of those questions as well yeah but I guess um to end on I really appreciate how both of your novels deal with like difficult complex ideas feelings politics um but they both kind of end on a note of joy so um at the end of stubborn archivist we have the protagonist like kind of coming into her body and at the end of her new novel it we've got like Melissa and Katerina at the protest and, and there's a real like uplifting feeling. And um, it made me think of a, the quote by Emma Goldman, the activist, which I'm just gonna uh, read. Um, so I think she was um, like at a dance and some, just for context, like um, a guy, another activist came up to her and kind of said like, oh, you know, how can you be in the struggle if you're like dancing with such abandon? Like we need to be, you know, more serious and dignified. And she says, um, I grew furious at the impudent interference of the boy. I told him to mind his own business. I was tired of having the cause constantly thrown into my face. I did not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful ideal, for anarchism, for release and freedom from conventions and prejudice should demand the denial of life and joy. I insisted that our cause could not expect me to become a nun and that the movement should not be turned into a cloister. If it meant that, I did not want it. I want freedom, the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. Anarchism meant that to me and I would live it in spite of the whole world. Prisons, persecution, everything. I feel like that's that quote just seems to really speak to your work. Yeah, so what, what are your thoughts on kind of joy, I guess, especially within a political framework? Yeah, I completely agree with um, Emma Goldman. And I'd never, I've, I've heard about her saying that they'll be dancing in the revolution, but I've never heard that full quote and it's wonderful. 
Um, so thank you for sharing it. I think I, don't, I have no idea what things are going to look like, but I imagine that there'll be like abundant dancing and gardening and swimming and like people making art and sharing it in their communities and like really good food. And I don't know, these are just a few things. But And I think also that we have to hang on to the joy that we have. Otherwise, things are just so miserable, I think, otherwise. Um, and and yeah, I think it's like those moments that help us remind, like help us feel that something else is possible and real as well. So yeah, I'm a really big believer in evoking that as much as I possibly can, um, as I think you are too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and yeah, on that note, would you um, read another extract for us to finish? Yes, absolutely. It was that kind of N22, N16, N17 terraced Victorian house with four bedrooms and coving above the small bay windows that Millicent knew. It had new, cheaper floors, lino in the kitchen and old beige carpet in the living room. The furniture had been taken out apart from two sofas in the living room. Cigarettes indoors, spliffs, everything smelt like smoke and outdoors, the front door opening and people coming in, pushing past each other, shouting and greeting each other. Shorts and jeans and shoes for dancing in, music so loud the house shook, best parties were always in August. White girls with shaved heads kissing each other, Olivia dancing with someone, black girls whining on each other, Katrina lost her thinking self. She was suddenly so fucking good at dancing. She moved all of her, each bone in sequence like the keys of a piano. Every song was the song was the song. Time passed around. She smoked four or five or six cigarettes in a row. She remembered everyone's names. Melissa disappearing, disappeared, talking to someone and someone saying something to her like, oh, you went to school with Ruthie, Ruthie Curtis, Femi in the corner of the room, kissing another person who looked like a man, big speakers, Katerina unpeeling like a banana. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.